I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Through the story of sexual abuse and the Church's response, I came to the unshakable belief that within the Catholic Church there absolutely must be profound and enduring change on the two subjects of power and sex. These words introduce the book Confronting Power and Sex in the Catholic Church by the retired Auxiliary Bishop of Sydney, Geoffrey Robinson, who went on to write another book on the subject called For Christ's Sake and who with three other bishops launched an online petition calling on Pope Francis to summon an ecumenical council inclusive of the laity to put God's house in order. A hero to many, but an open critic of the Archbishop of Sydney, Cardinal Pell, who now serves on Pope Francis's Council of Eight, Robinson has been a constant thorn in the side of the Australian ecclesiastical establishment. Last year, at his home in Sydney, he gave an interview to Jerry McArdle in which he discussed what he sees as the problems inherent in the Church's teaching on sex and sexuality. Bishop Robinson lives beside a very busy motorway and the time available to do the interview on a brief visit to Sydney was limited. But after a lot of soul-searching, Jerry decided it was worth putting up with the annoyance of the background noise to hear what the bishop had to say. So the interview begins with him telling us what led him to the priesthood. My father was English origin and my mother Irish. And um, I suppose she had that typical Irish mother thing. There were six of us and of course that's one of the big differences. That's why there are so, one of the major reasons why there are so many fewer vocations today because the families are smaller. And I think there was something of that, a mother's vocation, I, I have to admit that. There was also a thing in Ireland, and it's just interesting to mention because you've mentioned your own Irish background, that, okay, let's say you have three sons or four sons and only one can inherit the farm yeah. and get married, so what do you do with the other one? And the thing tended to be to either send them off to the Christian brothers or uh, to put them into the priesthood. With the result that you probably got a lot of misfits within the priesthood. It is an Irish church that came out here, but a very particular Irish church. Uh, and, and I don't think that factor was quite as blatant. But it is true that uh, the priesthood, for a variety of reasons, the one you've mentioned also others, can attract... Uh, inadequate persons. Uh, it gave them a, uh, a prestige uh, that they would never have otherwise had. So yes, it, it, it did lead to, to people who, who really shouldn't have been there. When you were ordained, it was before Vatican II and before the reforms of Vatican II. Would you, looking back now, would you describe yourself then as a traditionalist or a conservative priest? I don't think I'd ever describe myself as having been conservative, at least not by the standards of the times. Probably by today's standards it was. But um, traditional, yes, I, I accepted uh, what was taught to me. And I would have to say the last 52 years have been something of a journey away from many aspects. Not all aspects, of course. You know, there's so much... the. the, the, the the person of Jesus, the Gospels there, they were there then, they're there now, even more so. But a lot of the other churchy things, yes, it's been a 50-year a journey away from a lot of those. 
then came the, the, the sexual abuse and that was well, that was quite devastating for me for a variety of reasons. Um, I, I was given a job. I was a bishop already and uh, at a certain point in 1994 the bishops asked me to be part of the committee with a national job of coordinating a response of the entire church and, and that made me uh, oh, talk with victims. I did that deliberately to learn from them. I'd been abused myself as a kid, not a priest, not a family member, but it was abuse. And I'd been unable really to face it, and there'd been no help from therapy or anything in those days. So it, the phrase I use is, it was in the attic of my mind. I knew it was up there, but I'd never taken it down to look at it. And it was when I became involved with abuse that I finally had to do that. And so I think for the very first time I would have called it by the name sexual abuse. But throughout the time I was working, trying to you know, come up with this plan and help others, I was also struggling with what was going on inside myself. So yes, it was a very traumatic time altogether. I know, I know you've written quite a few books, but um, probably the most talked about is Confronting Power and Sex in the Catholic Church. You, it seems to me, were one of the few members of the Catholic hierarchy to start thinking outside the box on this. That you weren't content with simplistic explanations that this was some sin the priests were committing. You seem to think there's a deeper, deeper, deeper problem going on here. Am I right about that? Oh yes, indeed. Uh, we've got to look at the more fundamental causes and uh, if I may, that's my most recent book, which is uh, called For Christ's Sake. And it's trying to look at the fundamental underlying problems. The major ones I've identified as, as causes would be, firstly, a God of fear. Now remember I'm talking particularly about offenders, most of whom by now are elderly, so I'm talking about the teaching they got years ago, decades ago, in seminaries and schools, and there was a great deal of the God of fear there. And it's unhealthy and it leads to a lot of other things. And even, even the other things I'll mention in a moment somehow have their origin right back there, so it's the most fundamental one of all. But then the second one I mention is th that sort of moral immaturity that comes out of being told don't think, just obey. Um, you know, the church will spell out for you all everything that's right and everything that's wrong, and so you don't have to think about it, you just obey. And that meant people were not taking real responsibility for what they were doing. And that leads to moral immaturity. So I put that as the second one. The third one is then sexual morality, which at its extreme did say that even thinking about sex was a mortal sin. And that was long before the sex abuse crisis came. That was my first point of rebellion uh, against the church teaching because I, not because I disagreed with anything it said about sex, but because I could not accept that idea of God. I could not accept a God who would condemn a person to an eternity in hell 
for thinking about sex for 10 seconds. You know, it was just, that's, that's not any God I've ever heard of. It's certainly not the Jesus Christ I read about in the Gospels, etc. So, and yet it's a dreadfully unhealthy idea. Uh, and when you put together a, a priest who basically believed in a, in a God of fear, who was morally immature, and who was admired in this kind of teaching on sex, you've got all that unhealthy stuff already. See, one of the, the things I have always thought about it is, and this is just my theory, and I'll throw it at you, and maybe you can tell me what you think about it. I do not believe that most of these offenders were evil men. I believe that they grew up in this church that, look, isn't it better that he's fiddling around with a child and getting a woman pregnant? The child will grow out of it. The, there was something of that. Um, this was part of the teaching on sex, that every sexual sin was a mortal sin. And so even when they abused a, a child, the big sin was the sex sin. That was the mortal one, which was more serious than any more minus sin against the child involved. You know, a complete upside down to me of, of what our true values should be. Um, yes, a, a person who grew up in that atmosphere, uh, it wasn't helpful. Uh, let me add some of the other things I've got. Um, the male church. I'm not just talking about the ordination of women here. I'm saying that the feminine should be interwoven in the whole cloth of the church, you know, through in every part and parcel of it. And when you take that out, and when you have priests living in a totally male atmosphere, in which women are threats to their vocation, that's about all they are, uh, then that's, again, is dreadfully unhealthy. Uh, Celibacy, well, it can lead directly to offences. I think there are, I've listed three cases. Firstly, I think it's directly involved in all the offences against adult women. And the publicity so far has been about children, but there have been many offences against adult women, and they too have caused great damage. The second one is where boys were taken into the seminary too early into this hothouse male atmosphere and they never matured psychosexually so that they ended up at about age 15 and hence it was 15 year olds to whom they were attracted. Now that's only a relatively small number of offenders but they do exist. The third category was one you've already mentioned where there was this vow of celibacy and, and in the distorted thinking and you get a great deal of distorted thinking in offenders. In that distorted thinking, celibacy, the vow of celibacy referred to adult women, and they were off limits. But young, you know, a young boy, no, that wasn't that wasn't the same. Somehow, that wasn't seen as the same wrong uh, by such priests. So, but the major problem I see with celibacy is this: not not freely chosen celibacy, but obligatory celibacy. The celibacy of Francis Xavier was, you know, he, he, he travelled the whole world. He couldn't have taken a wife and children along with him. Um, he embraced it. He loved the people. Mother Teresa loved the poor people in Calcutta. Um, so fine, people like that embraced celibacy. 
And I've no problem with that when it's, it's done out of love. The problem arises when you get a, a priest, idealistic, full of the highest ideals, gets ordained, and then sometime later discovers that it's, it's all a package and once you unwrap the package, you find really good elements, but you find also less good, and particularly celibacy. And then for the years and years they try to live a celibacy that is unwanted, unaccepted, and unassimilated. Now that's really unhealthy. Going with it is the... See, you, you can get a young person who, with sufficient motivation, might be prepared to take on a life without genital sex, but no young person's in their right mind should ever take on a life without love. And I see all too many priests living a life without love um, and afraid of love somehow, or unable to distinguish between love and sex. Which almost leads us back to your first point, which was the God of fear. Mm -hmm. And I've heard the expression used that because they don't love another human being, they think they love God. I think many know there's not enough love in their life or can't. See, the, the church's answer is no good. It tells you that this divine love is abundant and it's all then all you have to do is pray harder. And that's, that's, no, that's a downplaying of human love. I mean, we're human beings, we need other people. Um, and, and if you try to live without that, uh, then one or other thing is going to go wrong. And yet they've never asked priests. Uh, there's never been a survey. I've never even heard of one in a diocese, let alone in, a, in the whole church, you know, asking priests, what's the reality in, in your life? Is celibacy wanted or are you enduring it? Um, well, can I be very personal here? What was the reality in your own life? Ah, uh, well, remember, you know, the abuse question comes mm. in there. It's not easy to answer. I, I, I've strongly felt the lack of um, uh, 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 the, the degree of love I would want there. Had, had anyone ever asked me, uh, for my opinion or vote, I've voted against obligatory celibacy from the beginning, for the last 50 years. I would love to have been married. And yes, I've, I've um, in fact, I've you know, sometimes asked myself, why didn't I leave? And I'm not sure I have totally good answers to that. I think there were some good reasons. I, I, I don't know, there may have been some less good reasons for that. From what you've said and what you've written, it seems to me that the tour you did last year of the United States, that seems to have been a bit of an eye-opener for you. The major purpose of the visit was to, was to speak in Baltimore to oh, it was about 400 uh, the LGBT, so the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people. And I gave a retreat first to those the day before it started. There were at least a hundred there. And they were wonderful people. These were all people, all 400 of them, were all, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. But they were all Catholics. Uh, otherwise, there was no point in coming. And, and that meant a lot to them still. You know, here were people you would think had every reason to say, oh, goodbye to you and, and leave the church. 
but they hadn't, they didn't want to. It meant a lot to them. And, and you know, on the first day, they really threw themselves into the retreat. They're as good a retreat audience as I've ever had. And um, then I gave them a, a major talk the, at the conference itself. And um, yeah, I met with any number of them and talked with them. That was a good experience. Uh, you know, they weren't the first gay people I'd met. I'd never met them in such numbers. Uh, and, and here were, to me, good Catholic people trying to live their lives. And it was a good experience. So has the church got this completely wrong, this intrinsically disordered thing that they keep throwing around about gay people, that their nature is intrinsically well, disordered? Well, that comes back to sexual morality. I, I, and the talk I gave over there started off by putting out three hypothetical three theses. The first was there will never be a change in the church's teaching on homosexual sex unless and until there is first a change in its teaching on heterosexual sex. Thesis two, there is a serious need for change in its teaching on heterosexual sex. And thesis three, if and when that happens, it will have its profound effects on its teaching on homosexual sex as well. So I came back to looking at heterosexual sex and, and I, I do not accept this argument about um, you know the intrinsic nature of uh, sex that it must have in every single case uh, unitive and procreative that's an assertion it's not an proven fact and there's an old law of logic what is freely asserted may be freely denied and it doesn't make sense it, it, that's what makes it makes every sexual sin, if you follow that principle, that's what makes every sexual sin mortal, because it's a direct defense against God. And, and it's up on there, not on the power of blasphemy, you know, as the direct sin against God. And I just don't accept that. Furthermore, it's related only to sex, not to anything else in our life. Always remember reading a mocking argument many years ago that, um, the God-given purpose of our eyes is to look forwards. That's why they're put on the front of our head. Therefore, rear vision mirrors and cars are against nature and hence immoral. Now that's a ridiculous argument, but why then do we apply this argument to sex and to nothing else in human life? Why does it look so ridiculous when we apply it to anything else? Well, I think it's ridiculous when you apply it to sex too. So why? I mean, why does... Catholic Church, which, as you say, has so much good in it and so much to offer the world, what is it doing stuck in this mind frame? Why, why, why? Well, well, firstly, that teaching goes, believe it or not, all the way back to a contemporary of Jesus. It's that ancient. Uh, a man by the name of Philo of Alexandria was a Jew living in Egypt, so in the diaspora, surrounded by non-Jews many of whom were attracted to the Jewish religion but balked at the purity laws. So he was trying to explain the reasonableness of the purity laws. And in doing so, he developed this idea of the things that are according to nature and things that are against nature. And he came up with arguments. Look, they're arguments from 2,000 years ago. They're not mine, okay? But he said that um, homosexual sex was like trying to sow seed in the desert. He said that uh, having sex with a menstruating woman was like sowing seed in a swamp. Now, these are his arguments of his time, and that was their purpose, to defend 
the purity laws of the Jewish religion. Now, unfortunately, uh, at the same time, not just in the Christian world, in the pagan world too, there was um, a, a sort of an anti-body movement. You know, the body was bad, wrong. And unfortunately, various Christian writers of the time took up, you know, people as early as Jerome, took up some of these ideas, and so that idea of what's according to nature, what's against nature, came from all the way back there. Um, now, oh, the big problem is, well, look, the big problem is the infallibility question, which means we can't be wrong. Uh, and and I, I've, I've said in, in the earlier book, Confronting Brown Sex, that the church is in a prison. But it was not evil people who put it there. The church built the prison, put itself inside, locked the doors and threw away the key. Uh, that's, and, and I can't, I mean, I can give up all sorts of rights, but I would never give up the right to be wrong. I demand that right a hundred times a day. Uh, and I couldn't live without it, and yet the church is trying to live without it. But look what it's doing. Therefore, we can't question sexual ethics. We can't question teachings on divorce. We can't can look, you know, look at all sorts of other questions. And therefore, most specifically here, we can't really attack sexual abuse by getting at its very causes, because that would raise these questions against infallibility. That can never be done. And, and that's what's really getting in the way of a, of a totally honest and thorough response today. You're retired now from active service, as it were, as, as a bishop. Um, so you've got, you've got a lot of time to think, and, and of course you don't have to look over your shoulder. What's the future for the church? Do, what do you think? I mean, does it have a future? Oh, well, I'd like, yeah, yes, it has a future. Quite what that future will be is another question. I, I can't see it disappearing altogether. Um, but I do think we're at a very crucial time uh, and I think this Pope has some unbelievable responsibilities on his shoulders. If he goes back into fortress and starts, you know, papal power and, and ignoring collegiality, ignoring the people of the church and it's all papal, papal power then I really think we'll see a vast exodus from the church. Mm. You know, these good, good, good people I've been talking about, parents and grandparents, many of them are hanging on by the skin of their teeth. And, and you know, this Pope raised hopes. If he now dashes them, then I, I unfortunately do see a, an exodus. It will depend on countries. I mean, oh, I'm not going to go into any great comments on Ireland, but I think Ireland's at a, a real crucible of this, uh, from where it came from to what it's going through now to what it will be. I think it will be a very different Ireland. I think already uh, that's probably so. Uh, here in this country, uh, we'll look at it. Exodus is already happening. I'm sure you've heard in the United States, the biggest single church there is, is the Catholic Church. The second biggest is ex-Catholics. The third biggest is the Southern Baptists. But there's that massive number of ex-Catholics. Well, unless unless some of these questions are really looked at, I, I would see that phenomenon really growing. Are you an optimistic man? 
I, I, I certainly do believe the, the Christian message is still there. Um, that's the great tragedy to me, that so many of these people are leaving the Catholic Church and my, I'm wondering, yes, but where are they going? Uh, are they just abandoning all that? Or are they, you know, are they retaining their, their deep faith in, in, in Jesus Christ? Or, or, because if they're not, then that's a great tragedy. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a pessimist. I don't, I'd certainly see this exodus happening. But what sort of church would it be? Would it be the conservative church, all that's left? Retired Auxiliary Bishop of Sydney Geoffrey Robinson in conversation with Jerry McArdle and once again we apologise for the unavoidable background noise. We hope it didn't spoil your enjoyment of the piece. We'll put a link to Bishop Robinson's website on our web page where you can access that petition for an ecumenical council. And that's our programme for this week. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie Our phone number is 01208 and the postal address is the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. Until next Friday evening at the same time, Slán is Banacht.